Welcome to the Campus Preach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 14, The Resurrection. Behold, a sower went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm Keith Darrell. This is episode 14 already, and this is, uh, as I said, the Campus Reach Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. That's what we're going to be trying to do here. And we are coming on the heels of Easter, so I figured what's the, uh, because we are Easter worshipers, apparently. So um, if you follow the Twitter um, we are Easter worshipers. And so coming out of Easter and coming out of the resurrection and the central element to the Christian faith, I figure a series on the resurrection would be good because as I do more apologetics, um, if you're listening to the show, I assume you're at least maybe broadly familiar with different strands of apologetic thought, be it presuppositional, be it evidential, be it classical. If you're not familiar with those things, that's totally fine. Um, over there, we'll we'll begin to brush on those things and talk about them more thoroughly. Um, but if those things mean something to you, or even if they don't, one of the things that we're seeking to do in our evangelism is basically lay out the resurrection. A lot of Jews were killed in the first century, being crucified uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but you know, thousands, literally thousands, uh, were being crucified. And Jesus was obviously crucified between two thieves. So in and of itself, the crucifixion is not the event that our hope is set upon, uh, but it's the resurrection. And it's in the resurrection that we begin to understand the rest of the events, including the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And so as we seek to evangelize, I think one of our strongest apologetic moments is really getting to the place of the resurrection. And what I mean by that is this. So a year ago, Andy Stanley had some uh, sermons where he talked about uh, the standalone faith. And basically he want, uh, and the way he laid it out, he wanted to make the resurrection the event. And we got to make it simpler for everybody to believe. So we, you know, maybe separate that event from scripture. First of all, it's utterly unbiblical because the very nature the apostles are arguing is not primarily their eyewitness account of the resurrection, but that the resurrection is the fulfillment of Scripture. Within that, obviously, if they were not eyewitnesses, the resurrection would not have happened. So you don't want to have this hard dichotomy between the two, but we need Scripture to understand the resurrection, and the apostles were preaching that the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was according to the Scriptures. So we can't separate the resurrection of Jesus from the Scriptures, but we also have the eyewitness account. And so what we want to do in our apologetic um, I, I think one of our best bets is this. So in 2008, the American co- economy collapsed. The Democrats had their explanation. The Republicans had their explanation. The communists have their explanation. The capitalists have their explanation. And wherever you fall out in your economic thought, you're going to believe the economy collapsed because of A, B, C, D, F, G reasons. We can all agree, the communists, the capitalists, Republicans, Democrat, right wing, left wing, we can all agree the economy collapsed in 2008. Why and how it collapsed is the place we're going to differ. So sitting there with an atheist and sitting there with an agnostic, sitting there with a Hindu, sitting there with a Muslim, everybody should be able to agree that in the first century, Christianity sprung up. Why did it spring up? And so everybody at the table should offer up their explanations 
of why Christianity arrived on the scene, arrived, arrived on the scene. And, oh, by the way, that that reminds me, apparently I was butchering Joaquin, 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 whatever. I don't even know what his name is. I've only read it. I received a myriad of texts, some tweets, some private messages. So, okay, I get it. I butchered his name. (laughs) When when you only know names from reading them, you're bound to butcher them. And uh, I did see when he played Johnny Cash, but I'm not sure if I've seen him in another uh, movie um, the only other time I think I've seen him was on Letterman when he was uh, in in character. He's trying to do the Method Man uh, character, the being a method actor, and so he went on Letterman and whatever. Yeah. So what? Anyway, whatever his name is, and made me lose my train of thought. But uh, so when it comes to sitting down at the uh, dinner table with somebody, an atheist or whatever, it's very reasonable for you to ask them why do you think the church came on the scene? Why do you think? this Jesus movement arose in the first century, and we all have to explain it. And once you get them to begin to play their cards, um, you're actually at a pretty good place because oftentimes maybe they just simply haven't thought about it. And what I'm realizing more and more, there are so many people who have not grown up with the church, have not grown up with the gospel, that the things we're presenting are genuinely brand new to their ears. I was literally having a conversation with somebody two weeks ago who grew up in a very non-religious home in Southern California, and it wasn't until she got to college, her roommate was a Christian, and her roommate was explaining the gospel to her, that she really understood that Easter wasn't just about eggs and the Easter bunny. And that might seem insane to you, but for someone who's 21 years old, I believe they're currently a junior in college, uh, that's what they grew up with. And last semester in November, I was in Oregon and had dinner with an atheist after I got done preaching on a campus, and uh, he knew nothing of Christianity. And so it was pretty great just because he's never even stepped foot in a church. So realize, especially as people are younger, you are interacting with people who know nothing. And so much of what you get to bring to the table is just be gracious, be loving, be kind, and ask them their explanation. You're not dealing with, you know, Voltaire and uh, these sorts of people. You're dealing with oftentimes people who just have no idea, and so they just throw up vain objections to the gospel that seem, you know, initially maybe plausible, or they just rely upon you to explain everything, which is actually pretty difficult without a dialogue. So if you're trying to establish what happened in in a scene of a crime... Um, once you can get all parties talking, I think it gets a little bit easier to try to discern through what happened opposed to just making one person uh, prove what actually happened. So we're going to uh, get into that over the next few weeks. But today, um, we're going to we're actually brush on more a little bit kind of the timing of the Gospels, because I think it's going to be helpful in our explanation of the resurrection of Jesus. But before I get to that... Um, I've had a really good week on campus, uh, which included a total whiff today on uh, on campus. But last week, one of the there, there are two things that happened last week that were pretty much uh, great highlights of. Uh, so for for the last six years, I've been visiting a campus in the Northwest, and there's been a young Muslim man who's harangued me every time. His name's Muhammad. He kind of has this lo- long hair, and uh, at the time, he'd be defending uh, LGBT. QRS, LNP stuff, he'd be defending. Then anytime I'd interact with him, he would really play up the Islamophobia card. And one thing you're able to do um, on a college campus, I'm the white male, I'm the Christian, I'm the de facto oppressor. So they're always able to kind of, if they know what they're doing, they're able to play that card well. And Muhammad played that card really well. So we'd go back and forth and just kind of have that. And every time he showed up, I was like, oh, here we go. 
But he came up to me. I was sitting there getting ready to preach the other day. I believe it was on Thursday. And he comes up to me, and he's really intense at this point. And I was kind of like, huh, what's going to happen here? And he says, I just want to let you know, this is probably, I'm graduating next week, and this is probably be the last time you'll see me. And so I just go, oh, man, can I hug you? And he's like, yeah. And so I hugged him, and we just started talking, and he laid out, like, he, he seems to be more committed right now to his Islamic faith, unfortunately. Um, but he was actually taken aback at how far America goes with things like the LGBT stuff. And it was just really fascinating to talk to him because, and he said, look, you got to see me over six years, and I apologize. I don't, I don't know if he full to apologize, but he kind of suggested I was a young punk and you've been able to see me uh, mature quite a bit. And it was a good, real basic conversation. I was able to hug him. I may never see him again, uh, but Lord willing, uh, maybe one day he'll become a believer and he'll recall the days of him interacting with me on campus. And kind of tied into that as well, that same day, there was a, uh, actually the week prior, over the last couple of years, there's been a uh, trans, uh, sexual transgender, whatever, on campus as well that I've been interacting with. And sometimes... He's been really respectful towards me. Other times, he's really pushed back on me. And two weeks ago, while I was sitting there preaching, and I had an okay crowd going, and he shows up and just immediately inserts himself and just very distracting. So I, I flat out ignored him, didn't even acknowledge him, aside from, ask, I forgot his name, asking him his name again, and just flat ignored him. And after a little bit, someone else kind of pulled him aside and chided him a little bit for how disruptive he was being. And they had a little debate discussion off on the side. And so anyway, a week later he comes up to me and he actually apologized for his behavior uh, the week prior. And we just start having a discussion going back and forth. And I was with my buddy, Sean and uh, you know, he leaves come and we start to preach and get things going. And Sean starts to interact with him. I interact with him. And then Sean starts to interact with him uh, more publicly. And he was just, yeah, kind of very attentive. And so Sean tags me in. I come in, uh, and immediately, his name's Alice. He starts asking me questions. And we and he goes, that's a really good answer. Uh, he, he basically asked, does, does God, kind of Yithafro's dilemma, does God declare things good um, kind of arbitrarily, or is there a good outside of him that gives him the standard? I just kind of lay out, no, God's uh, revelation of his character. Uh, God is good, so he reveals those things that are true of himself. So God is truth. That's why lying is wrong. God is life. That's why murder is wrong. And so um, it's, it's that, that's how we look at that dilemma. And he thought those were reasonable answers. It was really fascinating to me was that he ended up saying, if what you're saying is true on the final day, I'm in a lot of trouble and I deserve hell, which is quite a confession. And it wasn't like a proud, haughty, yeah, highway to hell. I'm going there. What's the big deal? It was a man who actually had some humility about it and almost like, almost like a little bit of fear. And as I was talking to Sean at the end of the day, he's like, I think, I think God's working on that guy. And it was one of the first times in my interactions with him, you, I kind of got the sense and we were able to spend some time talking about some other things. So that was really good. And then today I was preaching and I mean, full tilt whiff. There are, there are certain days you go out there and you preach and I mean, you whiff. Um, and, and by whiffing, I mean, you, you barely get any acknowledgement even while you're preaching. So that kind of happened. And uh, so you just kind of sit down when that happens and you wait for the next changeover. And I was, I was sitting there, I was able to get into a couple conversations, which I guess technically doesn't make it a, a total whiff. Uh, but one of the highlights, I ended up spending about an hour and a half talking to a young man about, uh, he came up to say, hey, I grew up in a very fundamentalist home, got to college, 
began to be exposed to ideas I wasn't familiar with and people that I you know, used to just think were bad people. You realize they're kind of nice. And so what do I do with all this stuff? So we spent an hour and a half just kind of laying out uh, why Christianity is true, why he should believe the gospel, why atheism is not really a, a threat, the intellectual threat uh, that initially appears uh, to be. And you know, we j- just begin to lay these things out. And, and, and for us, what, what the apologetic ended up coming down to was at bottom – um, is the universe governed by the Logos? At, at bottom, uh, is the universe rational, or is at bottom it's irrational or irrational? There's absolutely no reason to anything going on in the world other than happen circumstance 14.8 billion years ago, whatever it is, that the universe just came into being. And Or is there a personal being back in the cosmos that created it? And so ultimately the Logos governs the universe. And I just said, those are your two options. I can't decide that for you. You'll have to make that decision and, uh, you know, you'll have to commit to it. And so anyway, a- after a long conversation, he was like, man, it's one of the best conversations. Uh, he's actually said it twice. Uh, one of the best conversations I've had on my faith in a long time. And it's actually encourages me to, to believe. And so even our apologetic, um, is for us as well. Um, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And John Frame, who I'll probably reference to throughout this, uh, not today's program, but throughout the show, because he's been so influential on me, he defined apologetics as the application of scripture to unbelief. And so anytime somebody is preaching the gospel and calling you to faith in Christ, they're calling you to believe something that you may not currently believe. And so you and I, need apologetics as much as uh, Joe Unbeliever. And these things encourages us in his faith and gives us reasons to trust Yahweh and his character and everything else. So anyway, it's been a really good, fruitful week amidst uh, today being a total whiff. Last week wasn't a total whiff. Uh, had some really other really good discussions. Uh, so again, I, I share those stories with you, not to, not to be a pat on my back or anything like that, but to uh, encourage you to just speak up, and what you'll find is people want to talk to you, and if people know you're the Christian, people will come to you. Like, granted, what I do is a little bit different, so the whole town knows what I do. Yeah, I can go to a coffee shop in Moscow, Idaho, and people will come and talk to me because, hey, you're the preacher. So I've, I've set myself up easily where people can approach me. Um, but if you're having those conversations regularly, you're going to find people will approach you, and people will find you, and what you'll discover is, man, I get to have great conversations with people. And I, th- I think I mentioned this last week, but there was actually a young man I was talking to last week who said, uh, I can't remember the last time I had a 20-minute, a sustained 20-minute conversation with somebody. And that's just grievous. That's just sad. So even as a church, just be hospitable and kind, invite people in, and you'll discover that, uh, yeah, people want to talk to you. And so anyway, that's gone a little bit longer than I planned, but hopefully uh, those stories will uh, bolster you in your faith. And so we'll we'll do this uh, pretty quick. So if you so coming off on the heels of Easter, if you sit down and you read through the book of Acts, what they're constantly trumpeting is that this Jesus, who was recently crucified, has been raised from the dead. And I think it's in John's gospel that upon the crucifixion, one of the disciples are, is mourning, and, and they basically said, we, we thought this was the one who was the hope of Israel, who would save Israel. And so you could imagine the grief that they had from Good Friday Uh, prior to the resurrection. But once that resurrection happened and he began to appear to them, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he had numerous appearances. If you sit down and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you look at uh, Paul's account, uh, there were numerous appearances, and he spent 40 days with them before ascending into heaven. And so you could only imagine if seven weeks prior 
uh, a man rose from the dead, Israel's Messiah. You see him ascend to heaven, and then he gives you the Holy Spirit. You could only imagine the fervency and zeal and zest and the explosive power that they would have going out to preach the gospel. And we're really in no different time. Uh, you know, it might be 2,000 years later rather than just seven weeks, um, but the reality of that resurrection is for us. The, the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You and I have that power today to be his witnesses in the workplace, on campus, uh, you know, wherever you are, with your family, with your friends, with coworkers, you have that. And what you need to learn to do is trust it, believe it, and trust that Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth and that he's able to save your coworkers. And so you just have this explosion taking place throughout the book of Acts, and they're constantly pounding home the resurrection. And I remember kind of discovering that in the early 2000s, maybe late 99, and I don't want anybody hearing what I'm not saying, but for a while there, especially in Reformed circles, everything was limited atonement for me. So, so everything about Jesus was um, limited atonement and you know, basically atonement theology. And I kind of, and, and, and the resurrection was almost like a cutoff. Like it was there because it obviously had to happen. But even my apologetic and my theology around the resurrection, I think was truncated because for the most part, I kind of bought into the evangelical argument that dead men don't rise, Jesus rose from the dead, therefore Jesus is God. So the resurrection was much more a proof for me that Jesus was God because there's no way that a dead man could just rise. So he couldn't have just been a man. He had to be God. And I would say it's not actually sound biblical theology necessarily. Um, Thomas does say when he sees him, my Lord and my God. So I do think there's a divine aspect to it. But I, I think also what's, what's central is just the reality that uh, Jesus was a righteous man, so the death could not hold him. And I think that's Peter's argument in the day of Pentecost when you know death held David, but uh, God made a promise to one of David's seeds, uh, and this Jesus, death could not hold him. He's been raised up. He's a righteous man, and he was incorruptible and all that sort of stuff. So I, I, I'm not going to totally let all the theology of the resurrection, but what we need to realize is that Jesus rose from the dead as a man, and there's one mediator between God and man, uh, the man Jesus Christ. And as a man, he rose, has all authority under heaven and earth, and he's the last Adam. So there's a strong correlation between the first Adam and the last Adam, he's still truly a man, and our evangelical theology, we're so quick to want to defend that he is God in the flesh, uh, that he is God, that we often, I think, downplay uh, the human aspect of who he was. But he's truly a man in every way that we are, yet he was without sin, and he's still a man at the right hand of God the Father. And how all that plays out, I don't know, but uh, that's what I believe the, uh, the scriptures teach. So within that, one of the things we're going to have to uh, get to is basically, you know, how can we rely on these eyewitnesses or these, uh, you know, these New Testament accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Uh, weren't the Gospels written hundreds of years afterwards and all that sort of stuff? That's going to be one of the main objections you're going to get. And what I want to lay out as briefly as possible is this. So the basic idea that the Gospels were written hundreds of years later is fundamentally wrong. And what I want to suggest to you is that all the Gospels— and I would even maybe go so far, maybe John wasn't, but I want to go so far as maybe suggesting that all the New Testament canon was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And one of the ways I want you to think about it is this. So if you remember two weeks ago, when I was discussing the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, uh, that's part of our Jewish apologetic to Jews that Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. And just as he says, within a generation, 40 years later, Jerusalem's destroyed. Bam. The unbeliever says, yeah, he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, but we know prophets don't exist. So this had to be written 
after the destruction of Jerusalem. So if I claim to have written a note in 1990 describing the fall of the World Trade Center, anybody looking at the note would be, ah, you probably wrote it well after, especially if I go into great detail about two planes hitting it and one hitting the North Tower, the other hitting the South Tower at a certain time. Uh, you'd be like, no, th this had to be written after the fact. There's no way that he wrote this beforehand. So there are details within Matthew, the, the, what's called the Olivet Discourse, that unbelievers say, well, these details, they, they had to be there uh, or had to be written after the fact because they wouldn't have been able to know these details. And so that's part of their argument. But if you think about it for a second, there, there are a couple things within the Olivet Discourse uh, that I think gives us reason uh, to think that it was actually written beforehand. So in Mark chapter 13, verse 18, it says, pray that it may not happen in winter. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in the summer, probably August of 70. And so, so if I'm writing after the fact, if I'm, if I'm talking about the destruction of uh, the World Trade Center, and I say pray that doesn't, and I'm, I'm actually writing it today, giving account of it, and I'm trying to put words into a prophet's mouth 10 years prior, 40 years prior, and I say, pray that it doesn't happen during the winter, um, knowing that it happens in September on a beautiful, clear day. That'd be an odd detail. So for Mark and Matthew, Matthew 24, 20, they include the detail that it may not happen in the winter on the Sabbath. And that'd be just one of those details I would just say are very odd if he's writing after the fact. They know it happened uh, in August of uh, 70. Why this detail regarding the winter. Uh, that seems like something that would be written beforehand, not the clear words that you'd put into a prophet that would keep it somewhat open-ended. Um, so that would be one of the details within there that I feel like suggests that um, it was actually written prior to destruction of Jerusalem. Also in Luke 21, 20 uh, and 21, it says, and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Uh, again, if, if, if people... You know, if Jerusalem's already destroyed, those aren't the sort of details you're going to include. You're going to give all the specific details, not any sort of conditionals of what may or may not happen. So again, not absolute proof that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before AD 70, um, but at least something that suggests in that way. But I think one of the reasons we can think that they're all written before AD 70 is that if you uh, realize that Luke and Acts are uh, kind of like, you know, part one, part two, and Acts ends with the Apostle Paul being in prison in Rome. And one of the things that's kind of interesting with that is Luke traveled with um, Paul in certain sections of Acts. You'll see we language. Now, one of the things that's pretty fascinating, if you just sit down, you were to, if you're writing an account of Paul's life and it ends, you know, if you're writing an account of my life and it ends with me in Moscow, Idaho in uh, 2019, You'd be like, well, how does life end? And so if you're ending with Paul's life in uh, Rome, probably around 62, uh, you'd be like, well, why don't, why don't he include Paul's death? Why isn't he including Peter's death? Why isn't he including the destruction of Jerusalem? Why isn't he including Nero's persecution? So there are major events that are taking place in the 70s that I believe Luke would have accounted um, that, that were so central to the identity of the church that if he was writing after the destruction of Jerusalem, after Nero's persecution, after Paul's death, after Peter's death, uh, those sorts of things, he would have included those, but he didn't include them. Why didn't he include them? I think the most reasonable explanation he didn't include them is that he wrote um, the, the, the book of Acts prior to those events taking place. So he probably wrote those things 
in the 60s. Uh, he probably wrote uh, the Acts of the Apostles in the 60s. So if he wrote those in the 60s, and this is volume two of his two, two letters to Theopolis, uh, uh, not Theopolis, uh, yeah, Theophilus, um, the, it, you know, those things would have, so the part one, the Gospel of Luke, would have been written prior to that, so probably sometime in the 50s. And, you know, depending on who you're listening to, a lot of people would say Mark was probably written first, and that Luke borrowed from Mark, uh, and that Luke also borrowed from Matthew. So in very broad terms, even Mark and Matthew were probably uh, written before Luke, depending on how you want to size it up. But I think the Gospel of Mark, if you sit down and you read it in the context of Peter, of a secondhand account of Peter describing it to Mark, a lot of it makes sense. And even just little details that we have, like there's a house um, uh, in the Middle East that we think is Peter's, and you know you can Google Peter's house, archaeology, biblical archaeology, and you'll have numerous secular sources pointing out a house that they think is uh, Peter's. And so you just have some of these historical details like that that point to, um, I think, relatively clear ideas that Mark is, is getting his ideas from Peter, and a lot of the stories make sense from a secondhand account from Peter. Uh, Matthew chapter 28 deals with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and I believe that Matthew is written by uh, the disciple Matthew. And even Luke in chapter 1 tells us that uh, you know, uh, he, he's undergone a thorough study of these things, and he even has enlisted eyewitnesses uh, to writing his account. And then also John uh, makes references to the disciple that Jesus loved that are most likely a self-reference. So far from these gospels being written hundreds of years later, what we, in very broad terms, there's a lot of details we get into, but I, I think we have a good reason um, to believe that the gospels that we have are early accounts, either John and Matthew, eyewitness accounts, uh, Mark and Luke, that were secondhand accounts from eyewitnesses of the events, rather than something that took place, you know, 100, 150 years, 200 years uh, later. And so that's all going to come in to the idea of uh, the resurrection, because here you do have recent accounts. It hasn't been corrupted by some telephone game, and it also becomes an, an important apologetic to our Muslim friends that we're going to evangelize, because they're going to say that Jesus wasn't crucified, and so there was no resurrection. And so we're going to show that very early on, um, all the eyewitness accounts is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, dead, buried, risen, and that's how Christianity came about. So hopefully that makes sense. So to basically recap uh, the idea that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually early, uh, either secondhand or firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus with his resurrection. And if you use the book of Acts as a baseline and you look at how it ends with the life of Paul and the events that he d chooses or that are not included, such as Paul's death, um, those are some very viable reasons for why the book of Luke was written much earlier than, say, the 70s or 80s or 90s, whenever people want to place it. And you'll have, like, your layman say, not until a couple hundred years. I, I don't know any genuine scholar that really placed it there. Um, not that they don't exist. I am just missed them. So we have good reasons to believe that Luke... Uh, wrote his account of Acts in the early 60s. The gospel came before that, and then Matthew and Mark's gospel came before that as well. And then also John, at the very least, was an eyewitness, even if he wrote it uh, later in his life, which I don't believe, but uh, I believe it is an eyewitness account. So that's, uh, that's a basic trajectory of our story. Um, 
you know, I am, I'm going to go through the historical aspect. There's going to be much more of a historical apologetic, which I think is helpful because oftentimes people need uh, just kind of like the facts. And I know if you're presuppositions, you don't want there to be any brute facts, but if you just push these things upon people, um, they'll listen and they'll perk up and they'll want to interact with these ideas and not everything needs to immediately go to an abstraction of, you know, the preconditions to knowledge. Uh, you just, what you need to do is just lay out some details for some people. And I think oftentimes giving them reasons to believe the gospels rather than just allowing them to think that it was several hundred years later will give them reasons to challenge their current system. So if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me on the Twitter at, I believe it's Campus Evangel, on Twitter, K-E-I-T-H at campuspreacher.com. If you want to email me, you can also look me up on Facebook, Keith Darrell. And uh, yeah, be sure to go over to Cross Politic, check them out, check me out, and I hope to hear from you. And we'll pick this up next week. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be gone